0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I just want to say that uh, next Sunday's service is a little bit of a surprise to me as well. But I do know this. I have been told it's a service like we've never had before. So it's it's, yes plan to come and be surprised. Uh, I am really excited about that. So um, having said that, I want to say good morning and welcome to all of you who are here on the weekend at the end of spring break. Yes, uh, I should be giving you a hand for showing up after spring break and being where all the places that you have been. And uh, so for those of you who are returning, um, hey, welcome. Welcome. I want to say this. If somebody brought you and you're a skeptic, that's awesome. This is a very, very safe place to come and investigate anything about Jesus. It's always safe. I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. And if you have questions about what I'm going to say today over the next few minutes, please come by and ask your questions. Uh, This is a safe place. We never put pressure on people. Um, But we do invite you. As you feel comfortable and safe to take steps in growing your faith. And that's true if you come here every Sunday. I hope you take a step forward in your faith today. And if you're returning and you you had a childhood faith but somehow you got lost in the melee of life and, and you're thinking about returning to your faith... Uh, I hope that you take a step in growing your faith today. And more than that, I hope that as I teach, that I will say things that will actually make that that step safe and and inviting for you. So, welcome to the journey every Sunday at New Life. is um, It's a learning experience. And so we are in this series, and in fact, I'm wrapping up the series today on the Bible for Grown-Ups... And I won't get into a lot of what that means, but we have learned a lot about how we got the Bible. This is the Bible I've preached from for many, many years, and I'll be explaining a little bit this morning about how it's put together. And in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to later on tell you how we got this book, okay, that you actually have access today. That for centuries was called Ta Biblia, meaning the Bible. Um, And so, to get us into that, one of the things that we have learned that was sort of surprising is that the story of the Bible doesn't actually, the story of how we got the Bible doesn't actually begin with the story of creation. The story of how we got the Bible actually begins with the resurrection of Jesus. I could safely say without fear of any contradiction that if Jesus had not raised himself from the dead, we would not have this book. I would not be standing here holding this book in the air. We would literally not have this book because the Jesus movement, if Jesus hadn't raised himself from the dead, the day that Jesus died, the Jesus movement would have died with him. He would have just been another good guy who did some good things, who died way too early in life. People would have mourned him, and, and maybe his name would have been recorded in history, but that's it. There would be no Jesus movement. And the Jews, who had these ancient sacred documents that they considered holy, would have kept those documents to themselves. No one outside the Jewish community would have had access to them, and there literally would be no Bible that you and I have. But the day that Jesus raised himself from the dead, the day that he stepped back into our world as a living person, it set in motion a number of things, and I'm just gonna go over three of the major things that it did. First of all, it triggered the greatest theological shift in human history. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, the entire world was polytheistic. That means if you went to the average home in any country across the face of planet Earth, you would have found a number of idols. You would have found family gods. You would have found regional gods. You would have found cultural gods. And you would have found universal gods. And every day, pretty much every family in the world was trying to do things to keep all those gods at bay. Because the one thing that everybody agreed upon was that the gods were demanding and they were easily angered. And so every time there was a natural disaster, people would wonder, what god did we offend? And they couldn't take that chance So they were going to temple after temple and offering sacrifice after sacrifice and going through ritual after ritual. Can you imagine not having just one church that you went to, but having uh, a temple for these gods and a different temple for these and a different temple for these? And you're going to all these temples doing all of these things in order to keep the gods from getting angry at you and placing a curse on you. Friends, this is how the whole world lived. There was only one tiny little nation that dared to believe that there was only one God, and that was a nation of Israel. And if you study their history at all, you know that even they hedged their bets and that they stashed away gods in the back corners of their homes just in case, right? Yeah, so the whole world was involved in this polytheistic theology the day that Jesus walked out of his grave and authenticated every claim he had ever made. It began a massive theological shift that swept across the world. And so today from 99%, in other words, the whole world except for this tiny little sliver, 99% of the world was polytheistic. Today, only 28% of the world practices any form of polytheism. That's pretty amazing, don't you think? Massive theological shift. The second thing it did is it launched the I Saw Him Too movement because Jesus actually ate and talked and visited and laughed with Hundreds of people. We'll get into more of that later. But what that did when you actually encounter a person that you saw die. Literally, you were standing there when they died. And when you're standing there and you see someone come up. And as Jesus, was, his body was hanging there on the cross after he had died. And you saw a Roman soldier come up and thrust a spear deep into his chest cavity and he didn't flinch. Yeah, you know he's dead. And you see them take his body down and put it in a tomb. And a few days later, he walks alongside you and says, Hey man, how you doing? Is that going to change anything for you? After you get done being freaked out, which we all would be, we would go, it's a ghost, right? This is nuts. And he says to you, I'm not a ghost. Here, look at my hand. He holds out his hand, and you can see the scar from where they drove the nails through. And it's all completely healed, but the scar is still there. And Jesus says, reach out and touch it. I'm as real as I was a week ago. I'm back. And he says, oh, by the way, I am God in human flesh. You have a tendency to get on board with that. And to go, yep. No one has ever been able to do that. And oh, by the way, I'm the one and only Savior of the world. If you trust me, I'll set you right with God. Okay? I'm on board with that too. And oh, by the way, if you trust me, I will transform your life and I will make your life better than you could ever make it on your own. And oh, by the way, if you trust me, the moment you die, I will take you with me to live in my world. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. That's about the best news anyone could ever get. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this, I saw him too, with hundreds of people saying, yep, that's no lie. I saw him too. This message began to sweep across the world and people started gathering in these gatherings to do what you and I did just a few minutes ago. And they began to sing songs like, Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my life. Yeah. And these churches began to pop up all over the world. A third thing that happened was people began to think, Oh my goodness. We should write this stuff down. Anytime you see a dead person walking and they change your life and they promise to give you eternal life after you die and they authenticate it all by predicting their death and predicting their resurrection and they make it happen, you think, I've got to write this stuff down. I've never seen anything. I've never heard anything like this. I've never experienced anything like this. So person after person began to write down their experiences. And I can tell you that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus has to be the most documented event of ancient history. Because there are literally hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts that talk about it from people who were eyewitnesses. That's pretty amazing. But yet, they didn't have this book yet. The Jews still had their portion, and the other portion was being written, but they didn't have it yet. There was no Bible yet. Now, these early followers of Jesus, because the sacred Jewish manuscripts foretold so vividly Jesus' coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, the followers of Jesus adopted the Jewish scriptures as Christian scriptures, because they saw so much of Jesus' life vividly predicted in it. They said, hey, that's the backstory of the guy who changed my life. I can get on board with considering that my own scripture. So at this point, it would do us some good. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Bible, I'm going to give you a very short course in the Bible. So the Bible has two sections. The first section over here is 39 manuscripts. The second section is 27 manuscripts. This is called the Old Testament. I'll tell you why in a minute. This is called the New Testament. So let's talk about this part, the 39 manuscripts, the Old Testament. They were written prior to Jesus living, okay? The earliest one was written about 1,500 years before Jesus lived. And the the last one in there was written about 400 years before Jesus lived. So these 39 manuscripts were written over a space of about 1,100 years by a whole collection of different people, okay? They were written by Jews, and they were written for Jews, Every single person who wrote them never intended that they would go anywhere outside the Jewish community. Only God knew eventually he would take them outside the Jewish community. But at the time they were written, they were written by Jews and for Jews only. The third thing is these 39 manuscripts contain what the Bible calls and what theologians call the old Testament or the old covenant. This was God's agreement with ancient Israel as he worked in that nation to prepare for Jesus coming. It was a covenant, an agreement between God and the ancient nation of Israel. And the fourth thing is they contain the backstory of Jesus, which was why these early Jesus followers said, huh, We're going to make that part of our Christian Scripture because they foretell Jesus so well. Now, the second part of the Bible, the New Testament was written after Jesus lived. That's this portion of the Bible, 27 manuscripts. They were written by Jesus' followers, and they were always intended for the whole world. They were never intended for a single nation or a single group of people The message in here was always intended for the whole world. Thirdly, this is God's covenant. The new covenant is God's covenant, not with ancient Israel, but with all people who will ever live. This is the agreement that God makes with people, that he says this is how it happens. And then last of all, it documents Jesus' life, and it contains the instructions that people who were personally trained by Jesus wrote to these gatherings of Jesus' followers around the world and to the leaders of some of those gatherings of Jesus' followers. And that is literally how your Bible is constructed. So, how did these 39 and these 27 get put together? Here's how it happened. For the first 300 years of the church's existence with this message of Jesus sweeping across the face of planet Earth, the Jesus followers were bitterly persecuted by the Roman government and in particularly the Roman Caesars. Remember I said that shift in theology from polytheism to to monotheism, this massive theological shift? It turns out that was harder to do than anyone thought because Caesar considered himself a god, and he wasn't happy about being kicked off the throne, if you know what I mean. When you're Caesar, and you're used to ruling the whole world, and someone comes along and says, oh, by the way, you're just a human being. Never forget that. He wasn't happy about that. For, so for the first 300 years, the Roman government persecuted the church, and the church was forced to operate underground. But that doesn't mean that God wasn't working. God was doing some amazing things in the church and already the church leaders, remember I said a while ago, hundreds of people started writing documents and all these things to document the life of Jesus. Well, already the early church leaders were figuring out some of those documents had a completely different nature to them. They had the ring of divine authority. They had all sorts of evidence that 27 of those documents just were different by nature than all the rest. And they began to recognize that those 27 documents were actually inspired by God. And they were the sacred writings that God had given For his church. And very early on. Even before 100 AD. So we're talking about 50 some years. After Jesus died. They had already begun. To to recognize these 27 documents. And make copies of them. And get them distributed to Jesus gatherings. All around the world. Underground. Now get this. Within 30 years, that process was so well established that when thir- within 30 years after the persecution of Christians ceased, church leaders had already agreed upon and accepted the 27 documents that you and I call the New Testament. And for the first time ever, they put the 39 manuscripts of the Old Testament, the 27 manuscripts of the New Testament they put them together in one book and they called it the Bible. How about that? And that's how you and I got the Bible. That's how the world got the Bible. So now there's a big question. We got 39 manuscripts in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. What's the proper relationship between those? And I'm going I'm, I'm to fly through some information here. So uh, if you got questions, you can ask me later. But the guy that actually comments the most about that is one of the most important characters in the New Testament, and he's a guy uniquely qualified to talk about the relationship between those two, okay? So let's go over his life just a little bit. His name is Paul, and he's often called the Apostle Paul, and that's a lesson for another time. But Paul was a Jew. He was born into a Jewish family, and he lived the Old Covenant. Now, there were 623 rules or commandments in the Old Covenant. Does that sound tedious to you? I'll give you an illustration in a minute. 623 different commands, and Paul was raised in a home where they did their best to keep all 623 every single day. He knew the Old Covenant from the inside. He was born into it. Not only that, when, when, Paul, when Paul got older, he was raised in the home of a Pharisee, and he had the opportunity to go to the premier Hebrew theological school of his day. And he got his degree in Hebrew theology from Israel's most decorated master teacher, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And so when we say Paul knew the Old Covenant, he had his degree in what we would call Old Testament theology, in Jewish theology. And because of that, he hated Jesus. Because all the Jewish, the, the Hebrew theological experts expected the Messiah to come on a big, on a big white horse uh, or, or something like that, and to march into Jerusalem and to set up an army, and to and to put the Jews in a place where the Jews would rule the whole world, and everyone would pay taxes to the Jews. Well, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he doesn't look anything like that. He's just a simple rabbi who doesn't even have a synagogue. He teaches out in the wild, in a boat, on a mountain. He doesn't care. He doesn't wear the typical rabbi garb. He dresses like ordinary people. They hated him. He was an imposter. That's all they could conclude. He was so different. In Paul, that hatred got so deep and so intense that while other Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus and didn't like Jesus' followers, Paul decided to become a one-man wrecking crew and he was going to actually end the Jesus movement not by teaching and not through theological discussion. He was going to end it through violence. So armed with the authority of the Jewish Supreme Court, he began raiding Jewish gatherings And arresting adults, throwing them into prison, testifying against them in court, and getting many of them executed. He was in it deep. Imagine his surprise when one day, when he's going to the Syrian capital Damascus... And he's going to raid Jewish gatherings, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus gatherings there. Imagine at noon, as he's on the road, he's about ready to break out his chicken sandwich. Kosher chicken, by the way. He's about ready to break it out and have a bite of his chicken sandwich, and a light appears at noon that's brighter than the sun, and a voice comes out of that cloud, out of that light. And it's the voice of Jesus. With one single heart stopping question Why are you persecuting me? If you think a dead man walking will freak you out, (laughs) try a voice from heaven out of a light that's brighter than the sun with a question that asks, What do you think you're doing, dude? Yeah. Paul stops in his tracks. And everything in his life changed that day. As you and I would guess, he went from being a Jesus hater to a follower of Jesus. Radical life change. And that set in motion a series of events that I can't detail for you right now. But I just want to tell you that Paul became personally trained by Jesus. Perhaps over a span of three years. How would you like to have Jesus as your personal tutor for three years? That's pretty cool, don't you think? Yeah. And so he was personally trained by Jesus, and he was commissioned by Jesus to spend the rest of his life being an expert at taking the message of Jesus, not to the Jewish people that he knew so well, but to the non Jewish people around the world. And Paul spent the rest of his life traveling outside the nation of Israel, starting Jesus gatherings and churches around the Mediterranean basin and writing letters of instruction to them and their leaders. So now we have a guy who knows the old covenant inside and out was born into it. He now knows the new covenant that Jesus brought. He knows it inside and out because he was taught by Jesus. If there was ever a guy who could teach us how these two work together, it would be him. And as we close this morning, I want to take us to three things that Paul wrote to these gatherings of Jesus followers that will give us insight About how these two portions of our Bible work together. And the first thing that he wrote was this It's important for you to read the Old Covenant, those first 39 documents, for backstory and inspiration, but not for how to get to heaven or how to follow Jesus. They are backstory, they contain the Old Covenant that God made with the Jewish, the ancient Jewish nation. So he says, it's important to read them. In fact, this is how he said it. He said, these things happen to them as examples for us, and they are written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. I won't get into what the end of the age means, even though I know you're curious about that. But I do want to talk to you about what he's saying. He's saying to you and to me that all 39 Uh, manuscripts in the Old Testament are written actually as warnings for us. You know what you can learn? Every time the nation of Israel walked with God, they ended up loving life, they had great freedom, and life was wonderful. And every time they wandered from God, life got hard, they got enslaved, and life was miserable. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out, ah, I think I can figure that out. Walking with God's a great idea. Yeah. It is the basic lesson of the entire Old Testament for you and to me. So read it for inspiration and read it because it contains the backstory of Jesus to help grow your faith in Jesus. Paul also knew that it was the Old Covenant in there but that Jesus was bringing a new covenant, so he wrote this. When God speaks of a new covenant, he, he, what he means is he has made the first one obsolete. It is now what? Out of date. That covenant's been fulfilled. It's no longer in force. It has been fulfilled. So if we were to say to, if we were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, how many of those 623 commands in the Old Testament apply to us today? His answer would be zero. None. Zero. It's done. And we don't go there to learn how to follow Jesus or how to get to heaven, those don't apply. So Paul, if, <laughs> if none of the 623 actually apply to us, do we have any commands today? And Paul would say, teaching number two, the heart of the New Testament, this new covenant that Jesus brought between God and people, the heart of it, is a single new commandment. Make it the GPS of your life. Now, right away, I think, Jesus is my kind of teacher. I did a little research, all right? And my research showed me that a court reporter is by law required to have 25 lines on every page. So I did a little simple math, and here's what I found. 623 commands, 25 pages Of commands, 25 pages of commands. Jesus comes along and says, How about this? How about that? There it is, right there. And the single command that Jesus gave is this. And Paul wanted all Jesus' followers to know this I'm giving you a new commandment love each other. And then he puts a little um, descriptor of what that needs to look like. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And Paul made that the backbone of everything he wrote to these Jesus gatherings and these leaders of Jesus gatherings. And let me give you a couple of examples. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the what? Same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Love each other as I have loved you. He wrote this. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has what? Forgiven you. Now, friends, if you and I would make that one command the heart of everything that we did every day, it would be radically life-transforming. When you got upset with your preschool kids and you were ready to pull not your hair out, but theirs. And you ask yourself one question. How would Jesus love my child? Hmm. It would tailor your response. When you get upset with your spouse and you think they have lost their mind, right? It would tailor your response. Listen, it would choose how often you use your horn when you drive and how long you lay on it when you use it. Yeah. One command. It's absolutely transforming. There's a third thing that Paul wrote, and it's one of my favorite things about Paul. He said, Jesus' resurrection is one of the most well-documented events in history. Believe it. And trust Him with your life in eternity. And Paul went to great lengths to actually document the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what I want to walk us through as we close. Paul writes to to one of the Jesus gatherings in a city called Corinth. And he said, I passed on to you what was most important. And here it is. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Let's stop right there. He said, that's the most important thing you could ever know in this life. Because the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus validate every claim he made. And they validate the new covenant that God makes with all of us. And then he says, I want you to know, it's just as the scripture said. And when he says, just as the scripture said, he's not talking about these 27 documents because they weren't actually written yet. He's talking about these 39. You could go back and see this foretold in page after page of of this ancient scripture that the Jews had. He goes on to say, so you would say, Paul, How do you know that Jesus was raised from the dead? Paul would say, dude, I saw him. He spoke to me. I spoke to him. He answered back. He personally trained me. I have been hours and hours with Jesus. I have seen him alive. Really? Okay are you the only guy? Paul would would say, oh no, he was also seen by Peter. How do you know that, Paul? Paul would say, hey, three years ago, I took a trip to Jerusalem. And when I got there, I met with Peter. And I shared my story with Peter about how I had seen Jesus. And Peter began to share with me his story about how that he ran to the tomb and he got there and he looked in and, and there was nobody there and, and the grave clothes were all neatly folded there. And, and then he shared the story of how as he left, Jesus appeared to him personally, one-on-one and spoke with him. Really? So, Peter, it's just you and Paul. Oh, no, no, no. No. All the other 11 apostles. He he appeared to them and talked with them and ate a meal with them. And Paul said, really, are they here in town? Oh, yeah, they're all here in town. They were all together for a council. So Paul went and visited with every single one of them, maybe not one at a time, maybe all together, we don't know, but he actually visited with every one of them and they all had their individual stories to say about how they had all seen Jesus alive after he had been crucified. Oh yeah, Paul. So it's just you guys, the inner circle. Oh no, no, no. There were hundreds of people. Hundreds of people I spoke with, he said, and that he was seen by more than 500 people at one time. How do we put this in perspective? Let me give you an example. It's been 18 years since 9-11. Okay? When Paul went back to Jerusalem, it was only 16 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Got it? And he ran into hundreds of people who had seen Jesus. If you could go to New York City today, and let's just say you didn't believe that two planes took down the World Trade Centers, and you went there, could you find any eyewitnesses in New York City who would tell you their story? hundreds of them. Well, guess what? Paul went to Jerusalem, and there were hundreds of people. I want to focus on one thing as we close. He said most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. In just a minute, I'll explain that. Here's what Paul really tells us. The resurrection of Jesus is real. Not because, as some of you have been taught in a college class somewhere, not because it was accepted eventually as sort of legend or lore, or do you believe 9-11 is legend and lore? No, it's reality. The resurrection of Jesus is reality because it was authenticated immediately. So as we draw to a conclusion, Paul would say to you, trust Jesus to set you right with God. You know what he would say? I hated Jesus. I hated Jesus' followers. I killed them. But Jesus came to me in love and he set me right with God. If he would do that for me, He would do it for anybody. No matter what you've done, where you've been, how bad you are. Trust Jesus to set you right with God. Trust Jesus to transform your life. Here's this amazing thing. The most common invitation that Jesus gave was this invitation, follow me. As we follow him, as we take that one command to love each other as I have loved you, as we take that one command and we begin to follow Jesus in that, he begins to change and transform our lives. Not by leverage, not by fear, not through 623 commands. He begins to change our lives by his work on the inside of us. And then last of all, Trust Jesus to secure your life after death. I paused in that last scripture that we read because Paul described death as some have fallen asleep. Did you know that the early Christians used that phrase to describe death because it conveyed something to them that I think it should convey to us? Every day, every night, every evening when you lay down to go to sleep, you give yourself permission to go to sleep because you believe what? You will wake up. And if you didn't think you would wake up, you wouldn't go to sleep, right? But you go to sleep believing that you will wake up and you believe that when you wake up, you will wake up refreshed and renewed. Did you know that the early Christians who were being persecuted and many of whom were being martyred believed that when I die, I just go to sleep because I believe I will wake up in a world that is renewed and refreshed. Trust Jesus with your life. And with your eternity let 's pray God thank you, thank you so much that you took the time and went through the effort to preserve for us thirty nine ancient documents and twenty seven a little bit less ancient documents and that and Jesus thank you for bringing a new covenant, not six hundred and twenty three rules, but just one based around who you are and how you love, and based upon the fact that if we follow you, you will make us into people we could never make ourselves. And thank you for teaching us that when we fall asleep in death, we will wake up in life. I pray in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.